It was in the summer, when it was unbearably hot, that my father would sit at the kitchen table with his shirt off, and I would stare at the scar on his shoulder. As a child, it mesmerized me. I thought of it as something alive, because he told me that every now and then it would cough up tiny bits of gravel and glass. And each time I'd ask him over and over again what happened, he'd recall how he met my mother. My mother's father owned a sanitation company in Manhattan, and his father managed the docks where they picked up garbage. As part of doing business together, they invited their eldest children to a football game, the Giants versus the Jets. At the game, my father asked my mother out on a date, and if she were at the kitchen table with us, she would have interrupted to say, I nearly said no because he was rooting for the wrong team. He wanted the Jets to win. And then my father would return to the memory and say, I picked her up in a Mustang GT, the car Steve McQueen drove in the movie Bullet. But before they even made it to where they were going, my father sped over black ice and shot out of the driver's side, scraping his shoulder along the road, while my mother slammed her head on the dashboard and ended up in the hospital for the night. The absurdity of them getting married after that first date was completely lost in me as a child, but the feeling I had at the time was not. Because my father wasn't particularly affectionate or present, sitting with him at the kitchen table, gazing at his scar, hanging on his words, it felt as intimate as we were ever going to get. And I craved his memory of that night. But why? To understand, I spoke with Ira Hyman, a psychologist at Western Washington University, whose research includes autobiographical memory, the stories we make out of what we remember. This is what memory is for, is for sort of social bonding. And by, by sharing these memories and having these memories in common, it identifies us as having this shared background as being friends or family members to make us part of a social group and, and help us bond as a social group. I understood the need to share, but I wondered why a violent memory of my parents in an accident was oddly comforting to me. And a study he mentioned revealed exactly what's at stake in the sharing of memories between parents and children. For children, the sharing of memories, good or bad, is critical for their development. Marshall Duke and Robin Fivish, psychologists at Emory University, created a do-you-know test for children, which asked the questions from do you know where your grandparents grew up to do you know an illness or something terrible that happened in your family. The researchers came to an overwhelming conclusion. The more children knew about their family's histories, the stronger their sense of control over their lives. Now, before you get the wrong idea, just because I know the unlikely story of how my parents met, whether I have a strong sense of control over my life is debatable. But that crumb my father fed me meant a lot. And I understand how knowing the details of your family's memories could give you that sense of well-being. But what if my father hadn't shared the story of his scar? What if he withheld what I desperately wanted from him? That's Rachel's story. And it all started when my mother died. I'm Terrence Mickey. Welcome to Memory Motel. Rachel grew up in New Orleans, 
and now she's a mother of three and a university director at the City University of New York. Her story is the search for a memory she thought only her father could give her, and the unexpected twist of how she finally found what she wanted. Her story starts when she woke up at her father's mother's house, three days after her fifth birthday. My parents were in their early 20s and wanted a life of their own, right? They wanted to have fun and go out, and that's what they had done that night. They'd actually gone to our Mardi Gras party, and I know my mom had dressed up like a Greek goddess. In the middle of the night, I woke up, and my grandmother wasn't in bed with me. She emerged from the bathroom, fully dressed, and she knelt down next to the bed, got really close to my face, and she said, I have to go. Your mommy's sick. I thought a lot about where my mom was. I imagined her in a sick bed with a thermometer hanging off her lips like a cigarette. And that's the image that I held in my head. Her mother wasn't sick. There was no thermometer hanging from her lip like a cigarette. They were details she could hold on to for that night to explain the unexplainable. They were a placeholder for a real memory of what happened. The next morning, I remember the front door of my grandmother's apartment opening, and it was really bright, and two silhouettes floated in, my father and my grandmother. My mother was not with them. My dad sat down, looked at me, and he said, your mommy's in heaven now. She's with the angels. I don't remember him saying anything after he said that. I remember him sitting still, like looking towards the ground, like really in his own place and very disconnected from me. Her father had his memory of that night, but he couldn't share it with his daughter. So I moved in with my grandmother. My dad was with us for a while, but moved out, got his own place, started dating again. There was Sandy, there was Rosie, there was Gretchen, there was Gwen, there was Lori. I mean, pictures of my mother disappeared. As normal life marched on, Rachel worried that she'd forget what her mother's voice sounded like. There were some old tapes that had been made at my third birthday. And I remembered these audio tapes existed, and I really wanted to hear them. Happy birthday, dear Rachel. And I locked myself in my room and listened to them. Those who study childhood memory confront an interesting paradox. Children start talking about the past before they can actually remember it. You can recount with a two-year-old what they did in the recent past, but they're not likely to have a coherent memory of their own. Children rely on parents. The theory is that autobiographical memory functions through language. Talking about the past, whether yesterday or last year, develops a child's ability to locate themselves in a narrative, the story of who they are in the world. They need memories, their own, other people's, as a compass to show them where they are and where they eventually could be. Happy birthday to someone who likes to remember something nice to forget. While Rachel had photos and audio tapes of her mother, what she desperately wanted more than anything else was her father's memories, to know from him what she sounded like, what she smelled like, what she looked like, 
and who she'd been. The photos and audio tapes were a pale substitute for what she really wanted. He never, ever talked to me about my mom when I was a kid. I heard from his girlfriend, Sandy, once, right? She was the first girlfriend. And, and she said, you know, Rachel, your dad and I talked about your mom last night. And, you know, he, he cried. He got really upset. It gave me this little window into this world of his that I definitely wasn't a part of. All I knew of my dad is what I saw when I went into his apartment. It was always really dark. He liked candles. The blinds were always closed. This dark cave-like place for me represented some of the darkness inside him. Rachel's father, Steve, didn't intend to live in a world apart from his daughter or to selectively share his grief with other people or to hide the truth of what happened to her mother. Years later, I found out on a random weekday afternoon from my 13-year-old cousin that my mom had died in a car accident. No, she didn't, I said. She was sick. So later that night, as my grandmother and I rode home, she could see something was wrong, and she said, Rachel, what is it? What is it? I said, nothing. And I never confronted her. I didn't find the strength, you know, at that point in my life to break the silence. You know, it would take years of, I guess, talking to them in these indirect ways to really say what I needed to say, but I couldn't do it the day I learned the truth. Rachel had held on to the image of her mother sick until now. The details of the thermometer and sickbed were no longer relevant, and yet she had nothing to replace them with. She wanted to know the details from her father, but after years of not talking about what happened, she found that now she couldn't speak either. Her indirect attempts started with a school paper. I called this paper my silence aching. I mean, it's absurd to think about, but that's what it was. There was the high school play. I played a character whose mother and father had been killed in a car accident. And this was no coincidence. I had read the cast list before the show was cast. I was like, I have to play Claire. She is this tragic figure. And she sang a song called, What Is It Like to Be Dead? Then there was the funeral of her mother's father, her grandfather. She knew the memory of her mother would be present at the service. And after years of trying to cross the gap between her father and her, Rachel thought this might finally be the place and time for them to truly connect. And then her aunt, her mother's sister, asked Rachel to read a poem at the service. And I thought, yes! You know, my voice will be a part of the service. By acknowledging her mother publicly to her family, she wanted her father to open up. And I read the poem and, you know... And then I said, I want to speak now for the one daughter missing today. She's not here. And she would probably want to say something for her father. In the middle of this chapel, I heard a sound 
that was like an animal. Rachel heard an uncontrollable sob from her father, and she thought she'd finally reached him. They would finally connect and share their grief and talk about what happened the night her mother died. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like he feels it. He feels it. He's with me. After this happened, I just wanted to find him. She rushed through the crowd to the parking lot where he was with his mother, the grandmother she'd grown up with. And he and my grandmother were standing next to the car. I mean, it seemed like a mile away, you know, and I was imagining in my mind that I would walk up and, you know, he would just hold me and we would just, we would just be there. I walked up and he was looking down and my grandmother stepped between us. She was protecting her child and that was it. It was never acknowledged, I just stood there. For me, the night of her death, March 1st, 1981, represents the beginning of these two very different journeys my father and I took. After college, Rachel moved to New York, and in her 30s, she got married and had three children, the family she'd always wanted. She stayed in occasional touch with her father, updating him on the grandchildren, of new jobs and address changes, but she knew little of his journey until one day he started to let her in. I remember a phone call with my dad. He was in New Orleans, I was in New York City. You know, he seemed to be looking ahead. Hearing his voice opening up made her realize that she still craved his memory of what happened that fateful night. And then he ended up telling me that he hadn't been sleeping, But the reason he hadn't been sleeping is because he was outside late at night with a camera recording alien life, visiting Earth. In 2011, Rachel's father, Steve, was the subject of the film Invasion of the Dark Stars, which interviewed people who claimed to have captured videos of UFOs. Steve, explain what's happening here. Tell us us what you're saying. Here is the UFO that I spotted over the, uh, again, the neighbor's... For the first time, Rachel's father finally wanted to let her in. He wanted to share the community of UFO spotters he'd found. He wanted to share the meaning he'd made. He wanted to show her the videos he shot in the middle of the night. And as I went frame by frame, I was just amazed at what I saw. I'll never forget this one email he wrote me where he said, I know that you don't like to talk about difficult things he was talking about my reaction to the aliens. And you know what? In some ways, there's the dad who's trying to protect, and I guess I appreciate that, but I was angry. You're the one that's been running away from this conversation, and I've been fucking trying to talk to you about hard things my whole life, about my mother's death and what happened and what you know, and, well, he responded to my email with three lines I was in the car and held your mother when she died. Why don't you get it? This has been with me every day since. I will never forget it. Those are the only things my dad ever said to me about the night of my mother's death. And it came through in an email. 
at 7 a.m. in the morning. I literally pushed backwards, trying to impose as much distance between myself and the screen of that computer. I, I ran into the wall. After that email, Steve's contact with Rachel dropped off, and he was harder and harder to reach. I mean, he hit bottom. He was, he was running out of money, right? He'd exhausted his 401k to pay his mortgage. He stopped paying his credit card bills. He was totally off the grid. At one point, he was living without electricity. He would have a phone. He wouldn't have a phone. He would connect to email. He wouldn't connect to email. I mean, I was, I was concerned. Like, is he, can he live? Like, what is going on, you know? One night, I was woken up by the phone, and my dad was in tears. And he said, I, I can't be here. I can't be here. I need, I need rehab. Rachel's father left New Orleans to live with her and attend rehab. He stayed with her family, spent time with his grandchildren, and she had hope for their relationship. But he didn't last long in the program and ended up returning home after only a few weeks. I felt like this is a smart man and he could, he has great potential. If we just get him into the right training program and like connect him to the right network, he'll rebuild his life. He'll decide that we are the reason he should live. It doesn't have to be the aliens. We can be a family. You can be a part of my life. You can be a grandfather to my children. They want you. They need you. They don't have my mother. I need you. Uh, June of 2013, my dad's neighbors called the police because something did not smell right. The medical examiner asked me to send her pictures because she... She needed his tattoos to definitively identify him. We eventually went into the apartment. It was just empty bottles of vodka everywhere. It was so sad to think of him spending the end of his life in that space surrounded by vodka bottles. Alone. Alone. Death is swift and thoughtless. It takes life with no regard for the living. There are always a host of questions unasked, stories untold, confessions unspoken. For Rachel, she lost a father, and what she thought was her last chance to understand the night that changed her family forever. I wanted the memorial to be an opportunity for us to revisit the past, like the faraway past, you know. The past few years had been so unrecognizable to me. At her father's memorial, Rachel had a difficult time trying to reconcile people's memory of him with her own experience. One couple in particular approached me, and they, you know, I think they were still in this mood of, you know, yeah, we just told some nice stories about Steve, and, you know, oh, we haven't connected with this guy in in years. They hadn't, I think they probably hadn't seen my dad in a decade, you know. You know, God, it must have been a, it must have been a trip growing up with Steve. And I said, yeah, 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 he was all that. I was like, but honestly... You know, there were some walls between me and my dad. And and then I think I said, you know, especially related to my mom. And he never talked to me about her, her death especially. And then they said, we were in the car when your mom was killed. The two people standing in front of me were the people who had been in the back seat of the car that was hit when my mother was killed. They must have seen in my face 
something, right? And all we said to each other was, we should keep in touch. We should keep in touch. Hello? Hi, Alan. Uh, hey, Rachel. How are you? <laughs> we're, we're good over here. First of all, Alan, I hope you realize how grateful I am to you for taking the time to do this. It's like a really big deal. Um, I'm humbled by it. I'm, I, it's, I can't even express in words that, that it's, it's okay. I never realized that, that this was the key you were waiting for. So, Alan, I'm wondering if you can actually tell me what happened that night. The... I can tell you that it was a typical, not the type of night you expect a tragedy to occur on where it's rainy or foggy and nothing like that. It was a clear night. It wasn't raining. It was dry roads. We were in no rush. We were just, your dad drove because he, he had a Buick Regal. It was a reddish Buick Regal that brand new and it was, we did not, I did not have a nice car. And we were just coming home and it was no rush. Um, we had nowhere to be. My wife Bonnie had kind of dozed off a little bit because it was about 1.30 in the morning. And I was just looking around, and, and, and there it was, was a, from our right, uh, was a car. And it was going fairly fast, but, I mean, we knew there was a stop sign there. And, and um, your mom saw it, and I saw it, and when it hit, I remember it, it, it hit hard. It hit real hard. The car... Uh, course got pushed and it hit a curb and it flipped over and a couple of times I remember and then we landed upright which it just was all over in a matter of a, two seconds I remember the silence it was just quiet and then your dad called out your mom's name and I looked and she was uh she had been ejected from the car halfway because by the time there really were no shoulder seat belts. It was just a little lap belts. I squeezed out of the car because it was kind of crushed and flagged down someone who had slowed down. I think in the distance they saw it and they, I asked them to go get help back then again, no cell phones. Uh, please go get help. There's been an accident. We got some folks hurt and I went back in the, over there and, you know, God, now you're walking in, you know, almost knee-deep muck because it was a swamp, pretty much. And I got Bonnie out the car, and then I went, got her on the side, and I went back in to see what I could do to help your dad with Margie. Now, this is all happening quickly. You know, it, I just, it, I didn't, I, I didn't have a good feeling that she was okay. It just, I'm not a doctor, but it just, it didn't, didn't feel right in the and I remember putting my finger under her nose. I never felt any breath. I didn't, I don't feel a pulse. And my concern was the car was catching fire or something. Sirens came pretty quickly. The state police pulled up and pulled me away from the car and, and he just wouldn't let it go. Of course, he was hysterical as could be expected and uh, he would not leave her.
when I think about, you know, the moment of her death and, and just the, the agony he was in and knowing this loss was so profound, he couldn't make it better. He could never replace her. The life he had envisioned, as far as he figured, was taken from him. Uh, when you were born, it, it, was, it wasn't even a hiccup. He, he had a great job, and, and you know, he was going to eventually buy the house on Arthur Drive, and you know, him and Margie would take it over, and you'd have a sister or a brother at some point, possibly. And then, you know, it, it, so he had vision, and, um, you know, it, it just short-circuited in one night. Memories both remind us of and connect us to what's been lost. They create the problem of longing, but perhaps sometimes they can be a solution to the problem as well. I'm glad to know that in some part I've helped Steve reconnect. Uh, that's the beauty. I feel more connected to him now than I did the last few years of his life. And I feel like I can be more connected to him you know, as my father, as the grandfather of my kids now, because of this, this empathy that I feel and this understanding I have. So it's, it's amazing. As far as literature is concerned, Proust is the grandfather of memory. He set the bar for remembering. I have a translation of his book, Remembrance of Things Past. It's three volumes, so I haven't read it from cover to cover, but I've skimmed it over the years. It's something I return to because it's so beautifully written that I can open any page and be astounded by the prose. Like this. The only true voyage of discovery, the only really rejuvenating experience, would be not to visit strange lands, but to possess other eyes, to see the universe through the eyes of another, of a hundred others, to see the hundred universes that each of them sees that each of them is. That's the beauty of memory, the eyes of another, seeing the hundred universes that each person has inside them. Alan was like a movie camera for me, right? I mean, what he saw through his eyes gave me this incredible gift where I was able to see what happened. And I was able to Imagine, you know, this thing that my father was never able to talk about with me, was never able to say to me, I was able to see it, see it unfold. What he shared changed the story. Sharing memories cannot bring back the dead. It cannot correct mistakes from the past or undo loss. But it can connect us to one another, to ourselves. And for Rachel... It bridged the gap between what she always wanted to know and couldn't know until now. Thank you very much for listening. That was episode one of our first season of Memory Motel. In the next episode, we'll look at love mementos. Some people are especially good at setting fire to everything that reminds them of an old relationship. But most of us, myself included, hem and haw about what to do with what once brought joy but now opens old wounds. If you have one of these mementos that you don't want 
but can't bear to throw out, please tweet us the story of the object. Because it turns out, there's a special place for these mementos. And in the next episode, we're headed there. So please subscribe to Memory Motel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to follow our journey and wherever it takes us. And when you do subscribe, please, please, please leave a review. They all count. You can follow us on Twitter and we'll respond to all your tweets. And for more information on the show and individual episodes, please visit our website, memorymotel.audio. Memory Motel was created and produced by me, Terrence Mickey, your host. And today's episode was also produced by Benai Ferbata, who interviewed Rachel, and Bart Washaw, who also edited sound and wrote our theme song. Our intern, Carrie Ann Thomas, is amazing. And we also had support from the narrative team. A big thank you to Jerome DeRoy, Murray Nossel, and Jeffrey Yamaguchi.